Good morning, New City Church. It is great to meet you. I have heard about you, and the ways that I have heard about you is the opportunities I've had to fish with Jerry Klim. So, you know, fishermen never exaggerate, and certainly Jerry Klim would never exaggerate. I'm sure I've gotten an accurate picture of you. So a little self-introduction. Some of you may have seen the email, but the most important thing to add is that I am a grandfather of Hayden in North Carolina, and that is something that Lynn and I are, have been thrilled about and enjoying. She's four months old now. Uh, by the way, Lynn, if you'll raise your hand. Some of you may have crossed paths. Uh, somebody recognized her, her here. She's the founder of Neighbor Up Brevard, which under the umbrella of Neighbor Up Brevard includes the Doc After School Program, the Booker T. Washington Neighborhood. They're, Covenant Church, and I'm sure um, those of you who've come out of that have a, have a legacy of supporting uh, the doc ministry as volunteers, particularly in the early formative years of that. I know Jonathan Culley was a big part of that partnership in the early years. So as the email shared, uh, I, Lynn and I live in, in O'Galley near the, the, the doc ministry. I... Um, I now serve a congregation called Church in the Wild. It's actually a family of missional microchurches. Now, I'll explain a little more what a missional microchurch is. That's what I've been doing the last eight years or so. Also, because I serve as a pastor on a part-time basis, some colleagues and I have been able to start a nonprofit called Future Plan Financial. And this is very different. I've told other pastors, for the first time, I have a real job. I'm actually now a registered investment advisor. Some of you know what that is. I serve as a fiduciary. But the nonprofit focuses on people who have an income under the area median. The area median for Brevard County happens to be $82,320. So if your family income um, is whether you're single, married, whatever, is under that level. Uh, we offer financial planning and investment advice service um, as a nonprofit at a greatly reduced, about one-fourth the actual cost. There are some cards about future plan back on the table uh, back there. Also, there's I'm an author. Um, I've written a book called Build Hope. I'm going to refer to it during the message, and there are copies of that for sale back there. So... Introduction done, right? So I'm excited to have this opportunity to share God's word with you. Our primary text will be Jeremiah 29. Familiar passage, particularly verse 11. We'll end on verse 11. We're going to read in a few minutes the first 11 verses. And that's going to ground the theme of the morning. And I've called it mission tripping at home. Mission tripping at home. So before reading the scripture, I'd like to share a little bit of my journey. Over a 30-year period, I had the privilege of serving two Presbyterian congregations. Both churches grew steadily as we proclaimed God's word and as we shepherded the flock. And we developed a simple strategy at the second church, um, which I led, which, which over the years, I was there 20 years, grew quite a bit. Our simple strategy was to draw unchurched neighbors into a meaningful worship experience, to connect them in small groups, and not only so they would have 
hopefully authentic fellowship, but also be discipled in a relational context. And then as they grew mature in Christ, to send them out in some sort of mission endeavor, whether it was on a mission trip to Haiti or a mission trip to an under-resourced neighborhood in our community. And this strategy worked really well. The church I led grew a lot. We had, we had several building programs. But about 2005, about 2005, I noticed the cultural winds were shifting. Things were changing. And part of that was noticing that among younger generations, that there wasn't as much of an attraction to the worship services, though they were led by really talented musicians and though we did our best to offer various types of worship. In fact, the church I used to lead had four different services and four different types of music. And I actually wore four different types of clothes <laughs> to keep a list because we were working so hard at attracting people to something they would find meaningful. And of course, this strategy, it works in some places and some megachurch really still excel in this. But what we started to notice is that it just didn't work as well. And particularly among younger generations, we even offered an unplugged service for millennials and, and even though we drew some churched millennials looking for meaningful worship, it was just clear that, oh, that, that by that point, I'd been there over 10 years, that, that the strategy of attracting to worship didn't have as much impact. So being a Presbyterian, I decided to study the issue, right? So Presbyterian, you study the issue. And so I enrolled in the doctoral program at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, and I was able to use that experience of of working on my doctorate to learn more about how churches were adapting in increasingly secular parts of Europe and North America. So in a nutshell, I discovered that in faithfulness to our Lord, and that's always the key issue, is that when we pray over making shifts or adapting to changing cultural traditions, we do so in obedience to Scripture and faithfulness to our Lord. So I I, I really believe, and I've been on this journey now for more than a decade since then, that there are two shifts that need to be made, whatever the format of church. I, I work with churches that meet in homes right now, but whether a church plant like this or established church, I, I think the, this, these two shifts apply nonetheless. God wants, first of all, to change our attitude. And then, secondly, God wants to change our posture toward non-Christians. So first, let's talk about our attitude. It's, just, it's undeniable that many Christians naturally are frustrated by the changes in our culture. And we, you know, if I could put it in one word, we feel we've noticed that we're sort of in cultural exile. Because, of course, within the last decades, increasing numbers of Americans identify as nuns. You know, um, no religion, no spirituality. Um, When they survey, the, the percentage grows I think the last time I heard the, the results of the survey, 32% of Americans said they have no 
faith of any kind. When I was ordained, it was 10% in America. It's grown, it's tripled in the, in the portion and grown tremendously. Among those under age 40, 50% self-identify of having no interest in religion at all. A portion are atheists, agnostics, but the greater portion are just people that just have no interest. They, they're not, again, they just, they just don't even think about it. They don't have any interest in it. And when you account for the nominal, the Christians in name only in our culture, if you take those into consideration, then what's left is about 25% of Americans hold to Orthodox Christian beliefs. That's the latest estimate. So not surprisingly, if 75% of Americans don't hold to Orthodox Christian beliefs, not surprisingly, the values that are reflected in culture, in, the polit- in political life, whatever, are going to be increasingly post-Christian. That's just do the math, right? And that's the situation we found ourselves in. As I've been serving as an ordained pastor, I've watched it happen, you know, the whole time I've been serving. It, it's, it's, like, it's like we've gone into exile without leaving our native land. It's like we've gone into exile without a conqueror because it's many of our own family members and friends and neighbors who have chosen to disassociate. So it's not exile in the sense of the Jews being taken into foreign land, as we're about to read. It's an exile, though, nonetheless, because we're in a very different kind of place. And so naturally, naturally, many Christians are fearful Many Christians are frustrated. But I believe, I believe God wants us to get over our anger. I believe that God wants us to accept the reality of our minority situation and to learn to live like missionaries. And I believe this view is rooted in Scripture. So we're going to start with Jeremiah 29. And as we read it, let's remember the context. This is about 580 years before Christ. The Babylonian armies had invaded Judea. They had leveled the temple. They had carried the Jews into exile, most of the Jewish population, east into a foreign pagan culture, the area we now know as Iraq and Iran. And and it was cataclysmic. Jeremiah made the journey with his people, and through him, the Lord spoke. And the interesting part of this passage is the Lord makes it clear through Jeremiah that they shouldn't listen to the false prophets who are saying, oh, no, we're going to turn this around quickly. This is not so bad. This is going to change. Jeremiah is told by the Lord to say a really tough thing to God's people who are in exile. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elessa, the son of Shapham and Gemariah, 
the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name and that they were predicting that the Jews would quickly go back from Babylon to their homeland, the promised land. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, is it just me, or did it sound like God was okay with his people becoming a minority in a pagan culture? Actually, it's more than okay. The Lord sent them to Babylon. The language of sending, of being called and sent is so clear. Exile was God's sovereign will for his people. Even though there were false prophets who said, we're not meant to be in exile We're meant to find a way to be the dominant group again, God said through Aramiah. No, no, this is what I want. This is what I want. And so to paraphrase the message, Jeremiah said, speaking for God, get used to it, make the best of it. You and your descendants will be in Babylon at least 70 years. That means that it's going to be multiple generations. Many of you will die in Babylon. Make it your home You'll be uncomfortable, even persecuted at times, but I want my people to live there and to not only, not only get stronger there in an alien culture, but also to seek, paradoxically, the peace and the prosperity of the pagan city and to pray for it, which will be a blessing to you and to your pagan neighbors." Now, many of you know this part of Old Testament history. The remarkable thing is that in Babylon, Judaism became forged as a movement that was faithful to one God. Prior to Babylon, Jews often worshipped idols. Those that came back and even remained became faithful. And when Jesus, you know, had his conflicts with Pharisees 500 years later, they were you know, as misled as they were at some aspects of God's covenant, they were faithful to one God. They had been forged through the experience of exile. Life in Babylon and its successor, Persia, yielded thousands of courageous and influential Jews. And we know the names Daniel, Esther, Nehemiah, as God refined his people. 
And after 70 years, the promise was fulfilled. King Cyrus of Persia, who had taken over from the Babylonians, he sent back a portion of the Jews who were there in Babylon, and they were, they were allowed and even supported in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But they didn't all return. They didn't all. Many remained in Iraq and in, in Persia. There are Jewish families to this day who trace their heritage back 3,000 years. And in the centuries that followed, you know, you had the Greek conquerors, you had the Roman conquerors. They took over Judah, Judea again. They scattered Jewish families far from their homeland. And by the time of Jesus, you have Jews who were settled in Egypt, North Africa, Asia, Europe, and of course, the East, Babylon, Persia. So by the time of Jesus, the Jews were much more faithful much more of a refined remnant that were faithful, and yet also they were much more used to being in a minority status. And you would think the story is that, you know, that that they're on the decline, but God was at work. The prophet Isaiah had, had, had predicted what God would be doing in this, in this little gem of a, of a verse. Isaiah 49, 6, the Lord says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. That's good, but that's too small a thing. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation will reach the ends of the earth. God had a plan. It's been called the Gentile mission, While bringing some Jews back, the Lord kept other Jews dispersed in a minority status so that when in the fullness of time, they could welcome the gospel given by the apostles and they could be light to the Gentiles in their communities and that God's salvation would span the ends of the earth. So here's how this Gentile mission played out. By the time of Jesus... There are synagogues all over the Roman Empire and east of the Roman Empire. These synagogues not only hosted faithful Jews, they also hosted converts to Judaism. And these interesting people sort of in the middle called God-fearers. You remember in the New Testament, there's Cornelius, a God-fearer. He's still a Roman soldier and a Gentile, but he's, he and his family worshipped uh, the God of Israel. And and so in the synagogues all over the empire, you have Jews and you have these Gentiles who are learning. They're not fully converted, but they're learning about the one true God because they were disillusioned with false gods. Because guess what? Pagans get disillusioned with gods that are like some celestial soap opera. (laughs) They don't, the God of justice and mercy became attractive to these pagans. Some of them converted, some of them were half-converted God-fearers. And on the day of Pentecost, after that, you know, the apostles obeyed Jesus' command to go and make disciples of every nation, where do you think Paul and the apostles went? (laughs) They went to the synagogues all over the empire because God had set the table by letting his people be dispersed. 
There were these covenantal outposts all over the, the Roman Empire. The apostles went there first. That was always but You go first to the Jews and you preach that the promise has been fulfilled. Some of them will believe, but then you'll be thrown out of the synagogue probably because some won't believe. And then in the homes, in the homes of the people who embrace the message, you start building these covenantal outposts that become places of worship for the one true God who has sent his son, Jesus. This was all part of the plan. And this is why, as, as, as sociologists and historians have studied the growth of Christianity, a nonviolent movement that grew like wildfire, it's because of the way God had been working to disperse his people and to repair them to be the ones who are heralds of the good news. Now, I, by now you're probably thinking, why is he talking about all this ancient history? <laughs> because we got to change our attitude. <laughs> that's, one of our, that's our biggest problem is our attitude. And it's an alternative to the fear and the frustration that we have towards the decline of the practice of Christianity in our culture. I believe that God can give us a hope-filled vision of how he will use this new situation for his purposes. And so I believe the first step is to embrace our mission, whether you're in a church plant or an established church or house churches, and that is God wants to refine us so that we will be heralds of his light to the Gentiles. Now, it's worth asking before I go to the second point, because the attitude is so key. What do unbelievers see of Christ when they see us, when they see us personally, when they see us in the media? What do, what do unbelievers see? Do they see what Paul called the fruit of the Spirit, love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Do they see the fruit of the Spirit? If they don't see the fruit of the Spirit, part of that first shift, the attitude change, is to say, God, I repent of, my, of letting my fear and frustration make me into a person who doesn't have peace, doesn't have love, doesn't have patience with these people whose values I reject and who don't see the truth that I do. The first step is the repentance that comes and asking God sincerely, give me a new attitude. Help me to be refined through this experience of cultural exile. And then the second issue is, you know, well, where do we go? Where do we go? In the old days, we would go to places like India. Well, guess what? The church is growing faster in India than here. We would go to China. Church is amazingly growing in China. All of it, by the way, is minority. Is in a minority, um, negative cultural situation. You know, where do we go? Do we go to poor neighborhoods? Where, where do we go? Well, well, the the key thing is it's always been that for people to know Jesus, they've got to come and see come and see what Jesus is doing and the community gathered around Jesus. You know that phrase from John 1:46, come and see. That's when Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see, you know, that I think we may have found the Messiah. 
So, so people need to come and see what God is doing in the lives of people like us. And the question becomes, where will our unbelieving neighbors come and see what God is doing in us? That's, this is the second issue. Up until 2005, I was absolutely convinced the main place that people would come and see would be in our worship services. That's why we did four of them. We were talking about the fifth kind of worship service because that's where people come and see God at work. And of course, that's still where people can come and see because what God has been doing here this morning is something precious and holy, and we want people to experience this. The problem, if of course, I've already acknowledged is that most unbelievers won't come here. No matter how well the worship is led by the team, no matter how incredible your your next pastor is going to be as a speaker, you might get people that are leaving one church and looking for another to come here, but the 75% and growing that are going to be harder and harder core unbelievers, they ain't coming here. They ain't. Their mind is closed, their heart is hard, okay? That's my experience of, 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 almost, of now 37 years of ministry is that what, what used to be the main way doesn't work anymore. And churches that grow a lot are generally people that just are getting sheep from other congregations and they got a, a new thing going and they're excited about that. Um, so, by the way, you can speak really freely when you're not coming back the next week, can't you? Yeah, it's just like, wow, it's great being here one time. So, so here's the second shift. I believe that where unbelievers are most likely to come and to see what God is doing in your life is this new posture. It is inviting them into your life, particularly life in your home. Inviting them into your home. In fact, when you were talking about this thing, I was just thinking, that is so cool. And man, I know that she wants people to invite people to come and, 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 and party with you like that, you know. That's where people are going to come and see. They're more, unless they're looking for a church, which some are still looking for a church, they're looking for friendship. They're looking for laughter. They're looking for relationships because people are lost and lonely. Of course, um, you know, that's, your home is where your unbelieving coworkers, your unbelieving neighbors are more likely to, to um, see your authentic self. That's, that's good and bad. <laughs> but they'll hopefully see what God is doing in your life and, and, and as you're growing. Hospitality, when you think about it, is grace embodied. Of course, the early church, we think of Acts chapter 2. It tells us that they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. I, you know, I read that differently now. When I read, they enjoyed the favor of all the people, I think they enjoyed the favor of all the people because they fed them. <laughs> very, very basic, practical thinking. They ate in their homes. They fed them. They were, hey, I like these people. They feed me. Why not learn from the early church? Because it's the warmth of our personal space where our neighbors can glimpse authentically the light of Christ. And unfortunately, it's the place where their closed minds and hard hearts 
um, won't be effective force field shields, you know, with their resistance to the gospel. And so as the first shift is going, as the Lord is helping you, as the Lord is changing your attitude and, and helping you move away from a posture of fear and frustration, expect that the Lord will want to persuade you to open your home. Or if you can't open your home for some reason, you're, in, you, you're helping somebody else open his or her home and working in partnership. That, I really believe, is the second biggest shift. And I think for this gathering to grow significantly among people who aren't right now Christ followers, opening homes is the key shift. Now, full disclosure, my home was closed to neighbors until about eight years ago. Lynn and her work, me as a senior pastor, we had extremely full lives. I was all about engaging my neighbors on the campus of our Presbyterian church. Our home was a haven in my mind. Other than daughter's birthday parties, I was inhospitable. If they wanted to meet, I mean, I I literally had this in my head sometimes. I I would say, if they want to meet me, they should come to that, the church, that, you know, and, and, and I will be ready to meet them there. And folks, I mean, I, sometimes because, because I was working 50 hours a week as a busy senior pastor and because we, you know, we were immersed, all our friends were in this big church I used to lead, I was so inhospitable to neighbors that when I decided to renovate, we, we put down pavers in our front yard and put all this new um, uh, greenery in there, bushes and all that, native Florida stuff. I remember when people walking, their dogs would come down the street because we were on the way to the beach. I would literally turn my backside to them when I was digging, you know, digging for the stuff so I wouldn't have to make eye contact. I literally turned my rear end to people. That's how closed I was. And I got, and that was while I was in this doctoral study and I started realizing how much I was part of the problem. And so not long after I realized how unfaithful I was to God's mission, it, on a, for different reasons, Lynn and I relocated to a street bordering Melbourne's Booker T. Washington neighborhood. Um, you know, real close to where she'd already been leading the, the dock after school program for many years. We had decided to relocate there. And so we had a new home, and it felt like a fresh start. So we began with prayer walks as a couple, and we would, we would look for the opportunity to linger in conversations when we met other people walking dogs or working in their yards. And about a year later, the Lord made a change in our lives and led us into a new kind of ministry and where, where we started a family of microchurches. And that's, as I said, this is called Church in the Wild. We meet in house church settings. Um, we have men's groups that meet in a brewery, and we often do um, public worship in a park, like Wickham Park. Uh, once a month, we, have, we rent space and we, we worship with other house churches together to kind of reflect the larger body of Christ. Um, what this means for me personally is that a lot of my work now, and this, now it's a part-time wadah, but a lot of my work is actually um, getting my house ready. I do sometimes as much 
home preparation as I do sermon preparation. <laughs> because, you know, hospitality is not natural to me. The Bible says in Romans 12, 13, practice hospitality. Well, I got to practice because I'm not very good at it. Your situations are very different from mine. I don't know. I couldn't presume to tell you what to do with your life and your home. And nonetheless, I hope you will spend a few minutes today thinking about and praying over the possibility of mission tripping at home. I looked at the list of your small groups that you have there at the table. Small groups can can together can can find ways to orient outwardly to make that part of their life together. It doesn't mean starting brand new stuff, but at the very least it could mean having a posture towards your neighbors that you want to give them attention. Scott Peck said, attention is the primary form of love, and to give neighbors attention is to love them. And so I've got some illustrations from our life. You might start with a meal, or maybe a backyard barbecue, perhaps a campfire. Whenever you do this, invite your, some of your Christian friends as well as your, your growing number of non-Christian friends because, because you're, you're, you're trying to find ways to connect and you have more non-Christian friends. Try to have them both. We call this, by the way, in Church of the Wild, a Matthew party when we do it, where when Matthew became a believer, Jesus ate with all his tax collector friends, and they, they got to mix and hear and see Jesus among uh, in this new community. So invite people like the new family on the block, families with kids who play sports with your children, maybe a few coworkers. Use your your hobbies, whatever God is privilege you to own. I use my boat to take neighbors fishing or um, por- porpoise watching. In your prayer time, ask the Lord to put names on your heart and then ask the Lord to show you the way. About a year ago, I spoke about this subject with Covenant Church and several told me that, they, the, that several of the women's groups had studied uh, Rosaria Butterfield's The Gospel Comes with a House Key. That's a book that obviously we can recommend. It was used at Covenant. Jen Schmitz just opened the door. And if you need those names, um, I can tell you more about them afterwards. I I wrote a 40-day devotional book to help disciples deal with their frustration about exile and to allow God to show them their particular missional purpose. That's the one that's for sale back there called Build Hope, 40 Days with Nehemiah to bless your world. It's a, it's a series of three to four page devotionals every day for, for if you want to do it in 40 days. A lot of the stories from Lynn's life, Lynn's, Lynn and my life together, her work, some of the churches I've served. I'm here to tell you that mission tripping at home actually works. Many of our neighbors eagerly respond to our invitations Some of them even joined in with us to put on a block party. Um, And over time, you know, these efforts yielded a house church that meets on Sunday mornings. And and that house church, um, you know, in that that photo, we live in a 1,300-square-foot house 
That, I think we had 18 that day. We just, but about, about currently, about six or seven of the people involved in it, actually, you count the children, more like 10 people of the roughly 20, 22, were not part of a church at all. And I think about the years I served in growing churches, you know, and, and, and just the feeling of satisfaction. To think of nearly one half of the people in the churches being not church before, it's just quite a contrast with the way that the, the home is the way to reach people who unfortunately won't come even to a, a meaningful service like, like this one this morning. So, um, when I, by the way, when I agreed to preach here this morning, our church decided to gather last night. And we, we, had barbecue, we barbecued and watched, had two screens watching football games. And about a, a half dozen of those guests, about of the 26 or so we had, were people who were not part of church. And for that occasion, we simply had a prayer. But it set a nice day. It set a nice tenor. And obviously, as we're, as we're building these relationships, we will be inviting them to join us on Sunday morning. So, so folks, once we accept God's call to be missionaries in a post-Christian culture, we'll start to learn to think like missionaries. Missionaries in other countries connect with non-Christians by providing what the local population needs. In some places, it's a well. Do your your neighbors need clean water? I hope not. An orphanage? Probably not. They need community. Many of your neighbors are lost and lonely. If you open your homes, if you share your lives, if you laugh with them, if you cry with them, and if you pray with them, they will be far, 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 far more likely to open their hearts, their hearts, their minds to the gospel and to come and worship with you here in this location, wherever God takes this church in the future. I, I really believe that, you know, even though I lead a community, a family of house churches, I really believe that, are, that most regular churches, that the key for them to reach unchurched people, it's just so simple. It's not a lot of programs. It's not a lot. Of, service projects are great. The community appreciates that. But it's a simple, simple thing of opening your life and home to people who are lost and lonely. And God, the Holy Spirit will use that and the relationship you have with them ultimately to bring them here where with enthusiasm they will sing praise to Jesus. Mission trip from home. You will be stretched, but the Lord will refine you into a missional disciple. And in a season of cultural exile, what a better way to shine the light of Christ. Let us pray. Gracious, glorious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible generosity in our lives. And as part of that generosity, giving us the experience of church to come together 
and to be well-led and singing your praise and having your word presented to us and uh, by people who are prepared to share it faithfully. Lord, I thank you in advance for the things I will hear in the years ahead about New City Church, about the way this congregation has been refined through, through hardship and disappointment and found its footing and became uh, a source of love and light in this part of Brevard County. Lord, as, as the, the people in this congregation remain faithful to you by being loyal to each other here and preparing for the next chapter, also ask that you take this message that's rooted in your covenant people's journey in the Old and New Testament, and it would stir imaginations, help people to see new possibilities, and even anticipate the enjoyment and excitement of living lives on mission through the use of the home. And we thank you for the way that you will make yourself known to us as we are stretched, the way that you provide. You'll provide partners and you provide guidance and you will provide signs of that this is the path we should be on. So with grateful hearts, we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior.